This episode of Little Bit of Life podcast is sponsored by Patch Lab. Patch up and keep going. Their mission is to provide high quality, safe and effective topical patches that help you realize all the various self-care and personal wellness enhancement goals that you might have, especially at the end of this year and coming up into the new year of 2024. Their story started when their son came into the world earlier than expected and the journey that followed left him with a condition that caused them a bunch of different health issues and brought some serious challenges to their family. But there was a silver lining. They wanted to find different ways for people to get vital nutrients to their bodies without enduring the constant needle pricks or swallowing of a ton of pills. And yes, there had to be a better way that was cheaper. Through extensive research, they came across an exciting innovation, transdermal patches. These patches offer a revolutionary approach to nutrition, bypassing the traditional reliance on digestion and imagine harnessing the power of your skin as a direct gateway for essential nutrients. That is where their products came to fruition. Their collective commitment is to create exceptional wellness products in the form of transdermal patches. You guys have seen these patches all over my social media. And I've really been honest with you, showing you this journey and showing you what these patches truly do. I've been currently using their Power Up. It's their B12 Energy Patch. It's plant-powered and infused with B vitamins, vitamin C, vitamin E. And guess what? It is giving a consistent, enduring energy boost that won't let you crash. They also have their Sweet Dreams Z Patches. These are plant-powered as well, and they're infused with melatonin, lavender oil, and all kinds of different nutrients that your body needs and your body truly wants. I am in love with their patches. And the best part, they work. All of their patches have all kinds of different nutrients. And as you can hear and as you can tell, they are plant powered. They also have a great one called Cheers. It's the hangover patch. Who doesn't need that right now, especially with the holidays coming up? And yes, with the new year. What a perfect opportunity, right? But now you're wondering, where do I get these patches? I need this. Say goodbye to lingering grogginess, pounding headaches that always seem to follow a night of partying with energy, with stress, or with not getting enough sleep. Cheers to a night free from headaches and exhaustion, revitalized mornings, and everything in between. Make sure you head on over to their website, www.patchlabusa.com and order. And they're also on Amazon. Make sure you head on over to my Amazon storefront. The link is right here in the bio. Make sure you save yourself a little bit of money. Who doesn't like to save money, especially at the end of the year, going into next year, especially with our self-love, self-care, and our budget for the new year. Again, transdermal patches, let me tell you, they are changing the game. They're already changing my life. I love that their sleep dream patches help to ease me into sleep without that groggy crash the next day. And I know you guys have seen it. I drink those dreaded energy drinks. Now with their energy patch, I slap it right on my wrist in the morning and I am good to go for the entire day. If they're great, even up to eight hours. Again, make sure you head on over to their website, www.patchlabusa.com, or head on over to the link in my bio on all of my social platforms and order today on Amazon. Save yourself a little bit of money, a little bit of time, and bring back that self-care and that health right into the end of 2023 and the beginning of 2024 with Patch Lab USA. Welcome to the Little Bit of Life podcast. I'm your host, Tabitha, better known as Little. You may think you know me from social media, but Little is shown off the apps. That's until now. 
This podcast is dedicated to having those real, raw, and occasional chats together about what we seem to think but don't say. Special guests will join me that have impacted me along the way. Nothing is off limits. Sit back, take time for yourself. You've earned it. And enjoy today's topic. One voice, one story at a time. Let's dive in together. Hey guys, welcome into another episode, Little Bit of Life podcast right here with your host, Little. I was standing in the grocery store line. Yes, I can't stand the grocery store line. I'm lazy. Guys, I'm really being real with you right now. I'm lazy. I love to do store pickup, but on occasion, I just feel like being a little bit social, getting out with the community. And I was standing in line and I saw People Magazine. It is the special double issue and it got me. It's the year in pictures, tributes, most intriguing people of the year of 2023. I got kind of kind of curious and kind of nosy. And as I was going through People Magazine, there was an article, it's on page 92 of the December 18th issue that came out. And it said, I'm healing at last. And the context of this article just really pulled me. And it was something that I was like, wow, I really am interested in hearing her story. And it is at the age of 14, Stephanie was sexually abused by her teacher by her teacher. This lasted for years until she finally stopped the abusive behavior. And I wanted to interview her because this is something that now, especially within our generation, is happening a lot because at this time we didn't have social media. Our parents didn't really know what flags to look for, what red triggers to really focus, and how to talk to their teenagers. And I think now that the more we share these stories, the better off we're going to be in helping victims feel strong feel empowered, feel encouraged, no matter how many years have passed. Sit back and listen to today's very special episode with Stephanie. And if you have not gone out and grabbed this very special People magazine, it's their special double issue that came out on December 18th. Make sure you go and check it out, or you can read it online. Turn to page 92 and sit back and relax. And let's get started with Stephanie on today's very special episode. Hey guys, welcome into another episode, a little bit of life podcast right here with your host, Little. You guys saw it on my Instagram. I went to multiple different stores to find the People Magazine. It is out as of December because I have a very special guest. If you have this, I really hope you've already gone and picked it up and taken a little peek at it. Um, It is at page 92. I have on a guest today. Her name is Stephanie and we are talking about her story and sharing with so many of what seems to be happening quite often, and we want to sit down and really bring this topic to light. So Stephanie, welcome on. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. I appreciate you having me to share this. It is amazing to see your face in People Magazine on an article that is literally probably helping you heal a lot, but helping so many other victims that are reading your story and feeling empowered. And that's why we're really having you on today to share your story. Um, The article is very factual and it just states, I'm healing at last. You were sexually abused by your teacher at the age of 14 years old. Yeah. Yeah. It started when I was 14 and it lasted until I was 16. So a two year span there that it went on for. So in the article, it does state you were new to Arizona um, at that young age of 14. We're kind of in this, you know, weird spot in our lives. And I can say, you know, being a victim from my very first job, and it was my boss at my job at the age of 14, 
So many people ask, you know, the question of why. When you're 14, you have hormones racing, you have peer pressure, you have depression, you have where do I fit in? You're dealing with things, you know, within your family atmosphere and attention and just a form of affection is something that at the age of 14 as a female, we grasp onto and we don't come up with that thought process of this is wrong. I don't understand that because we never really think, at least in my situation, we never think it's going to go as far as it actually did. Did you feel that at 14? I did. I definitely went through a very rough patch leading up to it. We had moved from upstate New York to Arizona, which was a huge culture shock in and of itself. And girls in high school or middle school have a tendency to be kind of mean. Um, And so I was going through this period of just feeling very isolated, very alone, very vulnerable. I was diagnosed with depression, I think like six, seven months prior to starting high school, which is where I met him. So I definitely was in this weird, very, very vulnerable, very lonely place when I met him and he started. Hmm. Reading the article um, and sharing your story about it, it wasn't something where so many just think, you know, it happened, it was just a a one-time situation, you know, and it's over and done with, and, you know, you kind of just move on. It is something where, especially with women, when we are younger, it is a grooming phase, and these men know exactly the steps they're doing. So bring us back to that time. How did this start? I uh, started high school. I met him within the first few days. He was my Spanish teacher. So, you know, you go into the classroom and you're getting to know your teachers. And he came off as this, you know, I'm trying to be cool. I'm trying to be young. I'm trying to be relatable. And he was lying about his age. I found out two years into it that he had been saying he was 26 and he was actually 30 when this started. So he came in and he seemed very trusting and I would go into his room at like a zero hour before school um, to do homework. It was a quieter room. And then he had me responding on AOL Instant Messenger, which I'm showing my age. (laughs) It was a thing back then. Um, I'd be using his computer for homework and he would have me responding to his ex-fiance or a friend. And so that built like a sort of friendship and trust. And then it started, you know, he was instant messaging me from there and it started with school stuff and then it became, um, you know, more personal things. And so he really knew what he was doing and he knew how to slowly build my trust, knowing that I was kind of like sad and lonely and that he was giving me that attention and that affection that we talked about. And for those that are listening to talk about this for victims puts you right back into that same situation. It is traumatizing. And I want everyone to understand that when guests come on and share their story, it's taking you right back to the age when you were 14. Whether you've done therapy, whether you've done the process of healing, it's not something that it's it's over with, you know, once everything is kind of settled down. Um, so I do appreciate you giving all the details and, and kind of diving into that. When did it go from being friendly to the actual physical or really, you know, that, that grooming stage that he took that to the next level. It happened a month or two after school started. I believe that school year started. Um, he said, I want to like, let's meet at a park or let's meet up. And I think I suggested the park and I thought that I was going there as a friend or to talk or 
which is bizarre to do with a teacher. But again, he had built that trust and that relationship, making me think we were friends. So I met him at a park and that's when he, you know, grabbed me and he started kissing me in the middle of this very busy park. Um, and then that's kind of where it started is there, which is so brazen and insane to me that that was how he did it. But my reaction was to mm-hmm. freeze in that moment. But yeah. And it seemed as though he knew exactly what he was doing. And he introduced you so far as to friends and people within his outside community. Was that something that people kind of looked at the situation like she looks kind of young or how? I mean, it is amazing to me that he had the audacity and I would even say the courage to take you at that young age around friends and people outside to see his behavior. That's insane to me. To this day, it's insane to me. We went to Disneyland together and looking back at photos, there's a photo or two in People Magazine. I mean, I I can see an age difference, a very big age difference in those photos. And he told everyone that I was 19. So if anyone was questioning it, nobody said anything. Nobody spoke up. Nobody, nobody found it weird, I guess, because there wasn't any acknowledgement that I knew of that, that I looked young. And it does state that you were asked, you were confronted by your guidance counselor and your parents. And this is a big, huge moment, especially in this article, because this happens more oftentimes than not. When we are approached by our parents or those that are close to us, normally as victims, we deny it. It's what we do, whether it's fear of, you know, they have threatened us, whether it's a fear of shame or guilt of what's going to happen to me next, or am I really doing something wrong? Is this right? Is this wrong? So in that moment, when you denied this to your guidance counselor and your parents, how was that conversation brought up and why did you deny it? I think, well, for all the reasons you mentioned, it was definitely something difficult to talk about or, you know, the shame and the guilt and all of that. I had maybe mentioned it to a friend or I think a friend was suspicious about it. And then that friend went to the guidance counselor and the guidance counselor was very nice. However, looking back, it was a man that was questioning me, a a male guidance counselor. So I had been manipulated and conditioned into thinking if I admitted this, you know, the teacher's life was over, his life was over. And he would say, you know, I want to be a coach. You know, I want to do these things. If you tell anyone my life is over. I'm not going to be able to do those things and not having any regard, obviously, for me and how it would affect my life. So I was scared. I was definitely scared to to admit it. And I very quickly said no. And the guidance counselor said, you know, are you sure? And I said, yep. And he said, you know, do you do you know who would have said this to me? And I named the friend and he asked, well, why do you think she would have said that? And I said, oh, I just think she's jealous of me which is such a stupid answer. It's for any, any guidance counselor to just brush it off. And then from mm-hmm. there, there were rumors at the school, which were awful. Um, people were calling me like teacher fucker. I don't know if I say that, but teacher fucker. And there were rumors about people mm-hmm. having seen us having sex in any way in the school. And then that's how it got brought to the principal and my parents. And I don't even know what that conversation was with my parents. I don't think anything really came from it. Um, we didn't really have a discussion. They just kind of said, you know, this is what's, what's happening. And your school said, obviously it's not. And then it was kind of just brushed under the rug. And I even went to the principal and said, I'm the student that these rumors are about. Can you make it stop? And I'm sobbing I'm in the middle of a busy hallway. And I'm like, sobbing, like, please make it stop. 
And he said, I can't just get on the loudspeaker and tell everybody that it's not true. So that made me feel even less empowered to talk about it because it was just so swept under the rug and made it seem like it wasn't that that big of a deal when we know it's a major, <laughs> it's a very big deal. Did your core group of friends know about it or was it something that was kind of your, like with my situation, it was kind of my secret, I would say it was my secret on the side. I felt very shameful of it. Um, I mean, I didn't even talk to my mother about it, I would say for at least decades later. Cause it was something where I was like, I chose this. I chose to entertain this behavior from this individual. I trusted this person. So because this happened to me, this was my fault. I kept it almost as like my secret, my friends and my core, you know, support had no idea at that time. Was it the same for you? It was absolutely the same for me. I mean, I didn't really have that many friends going into that school year. Because I had been through friends in middle school who were awful to me. And then I had friends that summer that going into high school weren't nice to me. So, I mean, I really was in a position of isolation when he met me. I had very few friends. And I didn't know, for example, who I was going to sit with at lunch because there, you know, there weren't a lot of people. And so that definitely, I think, you know, encouraged that from, from his side. And um, yeah, and I went on to, to be on a cheer team outside of my school and people knew that I had a quote unquote boyfriend and they knew, but no one ever saw him. And I've now found out in hindsight and hang out with these, these girls that I cheered with. They're like, oh, we were very suspicious that, that it might have been the teacher. We heard the rumors and no one had met this guy. And to me now I'm like, well, why didn't, why didn't anyone say anything or question me? It was just so yeah. like, not, I guess, a big deal to people back then, which is mind boggling to me. I think it's something where victims talking about their stories and talking about what has happened to them at such a young age. I think now in our generation, we are more, I would say, awake of looking at flags or looking at people of like, hey, this doesn't seem right. Or, you know, this is a red flag. It also helps now with social media because there's not a lot of secrets that people can really hide. But, you know, at that time, with our ages, I mean, when you said AOL, I'm like, I kind of miss that. I kind of miss that AOL chat and that dial up. Like, I miss that. But looking at kind of that shift of social media, computers, the internet, we were in this realm of we were completely isolated on one side of, you know, being young and kind of figuring out our life with those adults that were within our our realm to look up to of what we thought. And then this kind of, you know, start of, you know, the internet and being able to like that, be on AOL and nobody, nobody knows what you're doing. Nobody reads what you're writing or typing. Nobody seemed to care. But now, I mean, we're in this movement of like, pay attention to your children, pay attention to what's going on in their lives, who's surrounding them. Do you trust them? And I think it's truly because we have had some traumatic traumatic stories. And we're learning from that. That's why we have you on today. Which brings me to the question, what made it stop? I did. Um, I made it stop. I He worked at a bar at night and he would have me clean his house while he wasn't there. So there was one day where I was cleaning and I went in like a filing cabinet and that's when I found his birth certificate and I found out he was actually four years older than he was. And by that time, I was 16. I had a car. I wasn't completely under his control and dependent on him. So it was a culmination of a few things. And when I saw that, I was just so taken aback because I'm like, I'm 16. 
he's 32. Not only has he lied about his age, but that's a huge, you know, a huge jump in a way from thinking he's 28 to 32. And I was just so disgusted by it. And I confronted him about it. And his exact words were, well, I was already feeling like Chester the molester. So I wanted to make it seem like I was younger. And just hearing him say those words, something in my brain really clicked. And I, you know, had other friends at that point that I was going out with and I slowly tapered it off. And then he felt that. And then at one point he said he was going to buy an engagement ring and wanted to marry me. And that's when I said, absolutely not. I am 16 years old. A, how would I explain that to anybody? And B, like, this is gross. And it really just clicked for me. And there was one day where I was feeling really strong and empowered. And I went to his apartment and just said, this is over. This is gross. Like, this is over. And found that strength to do that and just ended it right on the spot that day. I think that's the hardest part, no matter what age you are, is you feel this sense of guilt when you stop the behavior because they have you so accustomed to protect me, protect me, protect my life, protect my future. And they have absolutely no regard for what your feelings are or what your future would look like. So that's that's very scary. Did he kind of, I guess, filter out or did he kind of still kind of come back, try and convince you or was it just one and done? He still came back or tried to come back and, you know, cried when I ended it with him and, you know, kept trying to make his presence known even to the point of when I was 20. So four years after this ended, he found out where I was working in upstate New York and sent me roses and wanted to, you know, try again in his mind. And then even from there, I would receive random Facebook messages from him over the years He messaged me when his dog died and said, you are such a big part of my dog's life. And so in my mind, he never completely let go because, you know, so many years later, I was still hearing from him. When did you report it? I mean, for those that are new to your story, did you report it immediately? Did you tell your parents or how did that process kind of, you know, move ahead and forward? It took me a very long time. Um, I was almost 30. So 14 years, however long that is, or math, um, took me a very long time. Uh, I was turning 30 in 2017 and that was the age he had been when the abuse started. And so at nearly 30, I was looking at my friend's children that are 13, 14, 15 years old. And I'm like, this is disgusting. I mean, these are children. These aren't teenagers. They are babies. They are children. And so that was the first thing that sort of clicked for me. And I was like, okay, I need to report. And over the years, I had kept photos of us, I kept receipts, I kept all of these things. And I think because somewhere in the back of my mind, I knew maybe someday I would say or do something about it. But turning 30 really kind of kickstarted that. And I went to a therapist or I went to a psychiatrist and I went there not even to talk about that, but that was the first thing that came out of my mouth, which I had Mm -hmm. intended on it. And we discussed it and then she legally had to report it. But I think it was a weird process because I was in California. The abuse happened in Arizona and he was living in Colorado. So to my knowledge, you know, she reported it. She came back and told me, um, you know, there's a a child living in his house. So something has to be done. And that was the end of it. I didn't hear anything about it. And then fast forward to 2021, I had this good job. I was feeling really confident. I don't know what made me look him up, but I looked him up and found out that he was still teaching. 
when I was under the impression that years ago he had joined like the reserves or something. So it wasn't a concern of mine that he was still in a classroom. I saw in that moment that he was still teaching at a school and I wanted to vomit. And in that moment I said, like, I can't feel responsible if he's still doing this to another student or if he has any consideration of doing this to another student. So that's what me, I email, I ended up emailing the principal of that school, like right in that same moment that I found out he was teaching. And what was the reaction of that principal? He asked me if I had ever reported it and, you know, Mm -hmm. he said, thank you for letting me know. Have you ever reported it? And I said, no, but I would like to. And I sent him screenshots of even the Facebook conversations with the dates on them over the years. And I said, my birthday is December 9th, 1987. If you do the math, you can see that I was, you know, very young when this was happening. And he actually was the one who contacted the police. And in a way that was very validating for me because it was the first principal or school that was actually taking my claims seriously. So that's how then I was contacted by the police. And it does bring you again back to that moment where you feel like you're 14 again. Somebody believes me. Somebody just doesn't, you know, say, you know, rumors happen, things happen. Like you don't feel that excuse anymore from adults. And, you know, so many people think, well, you know, there might be somebody listening, this happened to me or something similar happened to me. And it's just been too long. The damage is done. What am I going to do about it now? Um, I even told a close friend of mine decades later of what happened to me. And they said the same thing. Well, it happened then and you didn't report it. So why now? Why are you waiting now? And unless you've been a victim in that situation, there is no amount of time that passes that those feelings of what you went through dissipate. No matter how in-depth or traumatic that experience was, whether it lasted for months, years, days, hours, that never goes away. No, never goes away. And even after the trial and the sentencing, and so I think he was sentenced last July or August, but around January, so several months after there was finality and him being sentenced, I said to my therapist, I feel guilty. I feel guilty that I put someone in jail for the rest of their life um, because I had once thought I cared about this person. And I said to her, I was like, I know this sounds absolutely crazy. I said, but I do have this because I did have feelings for them at one point, even though we know now it was under manipulation. It was not real. My 14 to 16 year old brain, as you said, we go back to that, that kept coming back of how could I have done this to someone? And she said, you know, well, all you did was you told your truth. That's it. That's all you did. It was the jury and the judge that found him guilty and they sentenced him. But it is. I mean, you do go back to that. And I haven't had that thought since then. But I think that was a really interesting thing that your brain does go back sometimes to it being what you thought was love or care or that it was a relationship. And we know now it wasn't a relationship. It was sexual abuse of a minor. Mm hmm. With being your age in this scenario and who it was with, um, with your situation specifically, was that what you thought at the time was your first love? It, yeah, he absolutely felt like my first love because mm-hmm. he was paying so much attention to me and taking me to do things that you would do in a relationship, taking me to the drive-in, having me meet his friends, having me meet his family, that he really did portray it as a real relationship. And as love. And even after we had sex for the very first time, he, as soon as he's done, he's like, oh, I guess this makes you my girlfriend, which is insane. I was 
15, he was 31. So that, that really makes you think, yes, I'm in love. Yes. This is a relationship. This person really cares about me. They're willing to risk their job and everything for me because they care about me because that's how they convince you. That's how they manipulate you. I know that there's a lot of victims that are listening to this episode. You're in the same spot. You're in the same seat as us saying, yep, that was, that was it. It's almost this trauma bond of this was the first person that showed me a different form of affection versus what I was used to. We see things in the movies at that age. We see our older friends, you know, in high school and we're like, oh, I want that. So when you get a form of attention, it doesn't cross your brain at 14 that this is not appropriate. I shouldn't be doing this. Because when you get that gut feeling of this is wrong, they slide right in with that manipulation and they take over. They take over your emotions, your thought process, and you almost have like this out of body experience of this is happening. Should it be happening? Should I make it stop? But they just keep that cycle of manipulation with you. So I know if you're listening to this and you're like, you know, this was my first love. This was my first experience. That's where that guilt comes through later because you still have that sense of feeling like I did trust this person. I thought this was love, which brings me to my next question. How has this situation affected you learning how to date and what love really is? Has this affected relationships? You know, now that you're older, how has that affected how you look at love in a healthy way? It definitely affected everything that I thought a relationship was. I thought a relationship was you go to their house and clean. You know, I thought a relationship was it's normal to be on and off. I thought a relationship was normal for all of these these things that he had done to me. And I didn't realize until honestly, probably around the time that I was reporting that, oh, no, that's not normal. That's not a relationship. Once I got into therapy and we started talking it out, I mean, I was in the middle of reporting and I realized I still folded shirts the same way that he wanted me to which is insane, but it just, those things like stick with you. And that's kind of what put in perspective for me. If I'm still doing that, how has this affected me and my communication with people and my relationships? And that's something that I've definitely had to kind of, um, you know, unwind and relearn and relearn my values and my boundaries and just kind of relearn almost in a 14 year old brain, what a relation as a 30 year old, something, what a relationship really is. Mm Mm-hmm. So he was arrested uh, and he was extradited from Colorado to Arizona, which is where all of the court proceedings happened. And I want to kind of dive into that um, because you were there and you were a part of that. How was it being face to face as an adult and, and being in a room with this person? Because it has to bring up so many different emotions as well. It was tough. Um, it was definitely tough. I had... Talk to him on a confrontation call, though. So it was, I, I did have a little bit of interaction with him prior to seeing his face. I would get on court calls and his voice, you know, he'd be on the call. So it kind of eased me into knowing, okay, I'm going to see his face. And the day before, I was definitely very nervous. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know how I was going to feel seeing his face. I had no idea. You don't know in that situation. And right before I walked into the courtroom, this like feeling washed over me of hyper-focused, almost like an athlete going into a game of, I'm just here to tell my truth. I'm here. I'm going to see him. I know that I'm going to see him. I've, you know, I've accepted I'm going to see him. I'm, I'm here to do one thing. I'm here to, you know, speak my truth. And so I looked at him and I almost felt pity at that time for him. I felt, I felt pity for him that he is 
this person who did these things. And at that time, he still didn't think he had done anything wrong. He was still in denial, even though there was a confrontation call, even though there was evidence. And I think that's where the pity came from of being like, you are so screwed and you are just so narcissistic or whatever it is that's going on in your brain that you think you're getting out of this. And so that was kind of the thing that I had once I looked at him. He was convicted of 20 counts, 20 counts of sexual conduct with a minor. And he was sentenced to 66 years. He was. And we had actually offered him a plea deal. So the plea deal would have been um, 13 to 27 years if he had accepted it. So roughly 20. So he would have been 70 years old when he, he got out. Even at that time, heading into trial, he would not accept a plea deal. He thought he was innocent. For whatever reason, he still didn't think he did anything wrong. So going into it, you know, the DA and the whole team, my um, victim's advocate and the whole team at Pima County had always told me on the end of every call, no matter what happens, we all believe you. We all believe you. And I'm so sorry that happened to you. And that almost makes you get emotional because, again, that was the first time that someone was really saying, you know, what you went through is valid and we're here for you no matter what. And so going into the trial, that made it much easier of knowing the people who were on my side Knew, knew what I was telling the truth. And it was very liberating in a way going into that trial and just being so open about like, these are the things that happened to me and saying it in front of him in a weird way was very validating because he got to hear and got to see like, you don't affect me anymore. Like I can get up and I can tell people with a straight face, this is what happened. These are the facts. And it was interesting just that my brain kind of took over in that way. And he was... Convicted on all 21 counts, which I hadn't really anticipated. I mean, I knew he was guilty. We all knew he was guilty, but you never know what a jury is going to think. And so hearing the verdict being read, my best friend was next to me and we're just like, oh, holy crap. Like, wow. <laughs> you know, everything I presented, they, they, they know it's true. They know it's fact. There's no disputing that. And I mean, we were sitting there during sentencing and they kept reading you know, your sentence is this, this many years, your sentence this many years. And we ended up losing count, I think, after like 30 something years at that point. And we had to go to the DA when everything was said and done in the hallway. And I had to ask him, like, wait, how many years is that? Because just so many that kept adding up and adding up and adding up. And so, yeah, it was incredibly validating to know the whole jury and the judge were, were on my side. I'm from Arizona. I've recently moved to Texas, but I got to say, Arizona, man, did you come through Pima County because you hear so many court proceedings where the victim goes and there's been a lot of time that's passed and you have to have people that advocate for you. You have to have people that believe you. You know what happened. It's amazing to me all of the stuff that you saved. I think that is something that is is really commendable. I mean, I never would have thought to save anything. And it's something where you had the timeline decades later, which is just amazing to me. And it, I truly believe that it stopped this person from ever doing this in the future, which brings me to my question. You are a parent and now you are using your story to urge other parents to pay attention to your kids. So if we have parents that are listening and they're like, you know what, I have a 14 year old and it can happen with, you know, it can happen with male or female. And my kid does not want to talk to me. What would you say to that parent of just 
creating that safe space where they can trust you and not being pushy, but also how to kind of look for those signs that, you know, may help your child and may help them in the future. I think, you know, it's actually scary that people like this might have even more access to our kids now. I think that's the first thing that we need to recognize and realize this as a society and as parents that even the games they play online, like having the access that we have online is, is terrifying. So I guess first, just making sure you are really hyper aware of what your kids are doing on their phones and kids can delete messages. You know, if I had the ability to delete messages this, you know, today, then I would have been deleting them because he would have been making me delete them. You know, on our old Nokia phone back in the day, we couldn't, we couldn't do that. So (laughs) checking phone logs, Mm -hmm. right. And seeing, oh my gosh, my, my child is texting this number back and forth or calling this number back and forth and figuring out who, who that number is. It could be their friend and that's totally fine. But, you know, just being hyper vigilant in case what it, what if it's not, and also just creating that safe space. You know, my son knows that he can talk to me about pretty much anything. And we're very, very, very open. And so having that, because if there is something off or weird, then he feels more comfortable telling me, whereas I didn't feel comfortable telling my parents. I They had their own stuff going on and whatever happened. And so, you know, with, with my son, he just, we have a very trusting relationship. And above everything else, he knows that I have his back. You know, a kid bullies him, he knows I have his back. Just starting with the little things like that, that just he knows like, oh, my mom's going to fight for me no matter what happens. If we have a victim that may be listening and they, they think that that thought that comes through all of our minds when we've gone through something similar, it's been too long. I don't want to go through this. I don't want to fight it. I don't want to have to deal with people making me prove what happened. And I'm so scared that somebody is not going to believe me. And this is going to be all for nothing. And I'm scared because we, we seem to go back into that age and into that, you know, realm of thinking of when this happened to us. What would you say to somebody that thinks that process? Cause that seems to be what happens the most. I can totally relate to that because back in 2017, when I had talked to my psychiatrist about it, I had mentioned it to, I don't remember, a friend or family member. I remember telling them about it. And they almost discouraged me in a way. I think they were trying to be helpful. But they said, okay, if you report this, you're going to have to go through every detail. You're going to have to go through all of these things, which unfortunately is the sad truth. You do. There's no avoiding that. But I think realizing that or having had the support of knowing, okay, if you do do this, like I'm here for you or um, just not having that discouragement of doing that. So I think that's honestly what deterred me back in 27, 2018 from, from doing that. And then I don't, I'm assuming I had better support back in 2021, but, um, you know, it is hard. There's no way around it. It is really difficult. Um, but at the end of the day, having the truth out there actually helped me. And it was very cathartic of, you know, not holding in this deep, secret anymore. And it wasn't shameful. It wasn't embarrassing because anyone who supported me was like, you were 14. It was never your fault. Never, ever, ever your fault. And it, it, I mean, it's hard. There's no way around it. It's extremely difficult to have to revisit that as I'm sure you know of of those memories. Um, But it leads to, you know, justice and it leads to closure. And, you know, again, just to anyone out there, you know, I believe you. (laughs) Like the DA used to say to me, there's Mm -hmm. anyone out there. I believe you and I'm sorry that happened to you. And if you can just say that to anyone, it makes 
that reporting process and going through the details just that much easier. Well, I'm really glad you came on today's episode. I think if your 14-year-old self could see where you're sitting right now, she'd be so proud and so excited because one, you're sharing your story. Two, your face is in People Magazine. So I'm sure people are gonna be like, hey, aren't you that? Mm -hmm." Which brings on a whole other side of social media and people really diving into what they think that they know about you based on a two-page article spread, which comes with the hatred and it comes with the negativity. But I think your 14-year-old self would look at you and say, wow, I can't wait to be here because you are empowering so many victims to speak up and speak out no matter how long the time has been. And uh, I can't wait to hear your story because I feel like this is just the beginning and you're going to help so many other victims in the very near future. Thank you. I appreciate that a lot. That's that's the hope in sharing my story and sharing it so publicly um, that it will help even one other person feel not so alone or feel empowered to come forward or even do the research as to can I, I can still report this, right? Um, because you don't know sometimes there's statute of limitations and there aren't. So it's just really my hope that anyone listening that's been through that just feels not so alone. That's a wrap already on today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for spending your time right here with me. And a very special thank you to today's sponsor. We are stronger together, louder as one, and truly a family connected. Be sure to leave a review to bring others along this journey with us. Tune in weekly on your favorite streaming platform. Or if you're interested in being a guest, send me a message today. Let's get to talking. Until next time, be good to others, be good to you. See you next week.